Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors, who make amazing acrylic and oil paint, watercolors, and painting mediums. Made in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden sets the standard for art materials. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has an incredible array of roasted coffee beans that you can order and have delivered to your door. They even have a subscription service of curated blends that you can order by visiting their website fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners can get 20% off their order by adding the code Alfred Studio at checkout. Check out Fulcrum for some amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Why I Make Art, Contemporary Artist Stories About Life and Work, is the Sound and Vision podcast book, and it's out now. It features writings on Diana Al-Hadid, Jules de Ballancourt, Dove Bradshaw, Greg Crutzen, Heather Day, Inka Essenhigh, Amir Falah, Louis Vertino, Dominique Fung, Carl Funk, Vanessa German, Allison Janae Hamilton, Loie Hollowell, Khalil Robert Irving, Chris Martin, Tony Matelli, Carl Ostendarp, Aaron Riley, Devin Shimoyama, Robin Williams, Salman Tour, Colleen Smith, James Sienna, and many others. It's stacked with writings about art and really great artists, and there's sketches from the Sound Division sketchbook, some quotes about music, art, school, and many other subjects. It's available at Altelier Editions on their website for $25 or anywhere else you get books. Please support the podcast by picking up Why I Make Art. Jose Lerma was born in Spain and grew up in Puerto Rico. He earned an MFA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a BA from Tulane University and attended the core residency program in the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in Skowhegan, Maine. He lives and works in Chicago and San Juan, Puerto Rico. His work has been in solo exhibitions at the Kemper Museum of Art in Kansas City, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, the Contemporary Art Museum in San Juan, Puerto Rico, amongst others. He's been in many group exhibitions, including ones at the Milwaukee Art Museum, the Institute Valencia d'Art Moderne in Spain, a museum in Ponce, Puerto Rico, the Central Atlantico de Art Moderno in Las Palmas, the Dest Foundation for Contemporary Art in Athens, the Museo de Barrio in New York City, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Texas, amongst others. His work has been included in written pieces extensively in the press, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Art Forum. I talked to Jose about working inside and out, the genius of Picasso, moving from law to art, surface and texture, and much more. Here's our conversation. So were you teaching online too? You were doing that whole thing? I taught online. I was well what happened is when COVID started I was chair. Um, so oh, it was wow. kind of a nightmare. 
Um, cause I'm not naturally an organized person. So I had to like triple <laughs> my whatever gland does the organizing. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> What's like going at a million miles an hour. And I, it was just, I couldn't paint the whole time because I, I had to devote everything to kind of being a normal oh. person that runs a department. Right. And then COVID hit and that was triple the effort because we had to switch to Zoom. No one know what, knew what it was. Oh my God. And, um, it was a disaster. Yeah. No, it, it, it turned out okay. And then I passed the baton to uh, Michelle Grabner, who became chair after right. me. Thank God, because I had spent every ounce of my <laughs> administrative <laughs> skill <laughs> just trying to, <laughs> trying to keep it together. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that, that was the, the, my kind of experience with that. Um, I fortunately didn't teach that semester. So, um, so you could devote everything to just dealing with the fire basically isn't it funny like i think back to it now and like the amount of stress even like subtle stress too not just like the panic of a pandemic but just all the day-to-day like it must have like you know sometimes when i look in the mirror i don't know if like is this normal aging or was this like amplified You know what I mean? It, Are those grays true grays, or were they accelerated over those two years? It's insane because I remember there's that movie. Um, it's not that Dustin. It's not Outbreak. It's that. Is it? Um, shit. It's with Gwyneth Paltrow, and it was a. Um, it was a pandemic movie. I it was a pandemic any, movie, and it was. I haven't seen any of them. It was so on the money, like it. Yeah. They predict this was this happened like uh, eight years before the pandemic, and they kind of nailed every aspect of it um, in this movie. Um, yeah. And I, I'm forgetting the name, but uh, I'll remember it later. Um, but yeah, to the point of the riots and the, you know, it started in the same place almost. Well, this was this one started in Hong Kong, but um, it was a bat. The whole thing was like almost exactly oh, man, the same. It's weird, right? Uh, yeah. Like, wait, is this script writing? It was it, like, are they script writing live here? It was insane. Um, but I remember the early days when I was walking around with couldn't get a mask in Chicago for some reason. You think that Chicago? You could get you could get masks in Puerto Rico at the time. So they were mm-hmm. asking me, "What can't you get?" Well, there's no masks. So we're walking around with the studio things with with the charcoal filter. No, with the big charcoal filter things. Yeah, right. The, Go, the, the, going like, to Trader ones. Joe's with those things, looking like a <laughs> fucking alien. Um, <laughs> yeah, it so, felt weird, right? Yeah, we're buying mandarins with a big charcoal mask. Right. Um, you know, it's funny living in an. Uh, being married into an Asian household, like masks was never a weird thing, you know, because when we travel to Japan and stuff like the masks, it wasn't odd, but you could tell here when it happened, people were just totally freaked out by people wearing masks. Well, hopefully, and that's a, I think that's a just common courtesy. And I love that about Asian culture that I have a lot of students from Asia and they wear masks when they're sick. And that's maybe right. it's like something we nice should gesture. St- we should do it post pandemic. I mean, it's like, oh, you're sick. Put a freaking mask on. We're not like that. For some reason, <laughs> no. Americans are just like we're built on the idea of everyone just like doing your thing. You know, it's kind of like I try to explain it to, you know, uh, living with people like outside of that mindset is like. You know, here people come from everywhere, and no one will really pay attention to other people's cultural. Like, it's just like, you just do you. And like right. that's the whole, we're, then it's the nation built upon, like, you can make it if you work really hard. Right. And like, it's not about a collective. 
you know, right. society, really. It's just like, go get them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a kind of proximity thing. You know, you, li- you live in cities so, so densely populated, and in their case, you know, there's a kind of, you know, at least like the mask thing, you know, you, you're just more caring about, yeah. you know, because if it goes back, it might come back to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are other people who do the preemptive masks. Yeah. But hey, that's that's good too because in a way it like stops it from right spreading. Right. But so Chicago was was it, it was it tough for that? I mean, it was. Were you, were you there the whole time? Because I'm thinking Puerto Rico would be such a great place to be. Well, I because <laughs> of the chair climate, thing, like, I, I had to stay there, and yeah. then I I ha- was teaching another semester after that. And then the the riots happened, the the, yeah. the George Floyd uh, protests happened, and then they were followed by. In Chicago, there were these riots that were kind of uh, looting and all kinds of stuff, and they looted my building where I was staying oh, at. No. And my wife and I had to run into the, like hide in the roof of the building because mm. like this happened at like two in the morning. All these people just busted in and I could hear the footsteps oh and people going up and down and I was That's like oh. unsettling. no that was crazy because I the, it was the first day of protest and I was like you know well this is a good thing you know that people and then suddenly at night there's <laughs> gunshots everywhere and it's just <laughs> what yeah. the hell and I was like we're out of here <laughs> I'm done with yeah. this it's, that's it's what, different, right? It's that's the, like the idea of it. People, people were like, "Oh yeah, riots! Like this is what needs to be done and stuff." And then, right, because it doesn't you know, happen to you. When it touches home. <laughs> when yeah, it happens like to my you. wife works in fashion, so her stores were like being boarded up and broken into. Like people were just looting the stores and stuff, and like everything you know. in my block, everything. Because I live downtown, because I need to be close to the art institute, and so everything. And I happen to be living in a kind of the top floor of a commercial building. I have a I have like a loft, like a raw loft where I paint and I live. And so the building is, you know, the first floor is a restaurant, a, a Korean restaurant. And then second floor, there was an abandoned bar. So nothing there. And then us. And it's an old yeah. building with really kind of crappy doors that you can just kick in. And so when you see 50 dudes just going in, <laughs> in there Jesus. with masks crap your pants <laughs> and, I, and I were looking down a couple of them had guns and they said this is crazy next day it yeah, wasn't it on the sense. news or anything and I was like well this is just the way it goes so we moved uh, I, you know we just kind of decided right then like let's go back home because I grew up in Puerto Rico always thought of it as a kind of a violent place because I was mugged here a lot when I was a kid and yeah but then it's been super peaceful and you know and certainly the the politics of it never reached Puerto Rico in the same way, so it was right. it was very um, very mild. We bought a house and sort of it's been maybe I bought it maybe four years ago, and now we're like set up my studio here and a very comfortable kind of setup. And in a way, it's changed my practice too. Yeah, it's I can made, imagine. Yeah, it's it's weird having a. A different situation was when I'm teaching. The way I worked was I, for the last ten years, I, I'd, I'd have enough time to maybe make the paintings. If not, you know, I'll take a show and <laughs> do it in another country and kind of improvise right. it. Yeah, over there with local materials, trying to find things around. And I, I loved it because it was this uh, site responsiveness that felt a little, you know, 
extreme. You had a short, it was almost like a TV show or something. You had this many days to do something, and you find materials around, and you always surprise yourself. Yeah, with the things you find and the, the limitations make it into an interesting project. But now I have this leisure of, you know, infinite time and space where I can work, and it's all very rustic but very kind of healthy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So how does it? Do you feel? I'm sure it's like a plus minus. Like you gain a little bit in that pace and the you know, time and space, but there was something that you gained also in this sort of like, you know, f frenetic, like, oh, I'm, I'm in a new place. I got to get this show done and I got to get to find stuff and you become inventive in a way. But yeah, it's probably healthier to be in the situation you're doing Well, now. here's the thing. It's like the pressure's off in a weird way when you're doing the kind of the frenetic thing because the, the people are just so impressed that you put it together. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's right. all... Oh, you did this in three weeks. Wow, like here, like this is like, on the other hand, you know that uh, this is, I mean, under the conditions, it's the best you can do, but it's not the best you can do. And yeah. certainly the work is not considered. It's something that... It's, it's responsive. It's responsive and it's exciting. It has the spirit of installation art, the kind of... Um, but it's painting sometimes. And yeah, yeah. that that you, you, you end up with a kind of, if you have a high batting average with those, that's a good thing. But generally, right. uh, you just end up in places where you do transition work, the kind of stuff where you're like, oh, this would be great. Like, this is leading me into another body of work or because the new, it's, it's just all very exciting. And right. then I got tired of exciting. <laughs> <laughs> right, that became old. Yeah, became, became, always, the always different environment became like predictable in a way. <laughs> yeah, so now I have a very kind of a much more normal practice. I mean, I paint outside. It's the only thing that's a little bit weird. So my studio, we bought a house with an abandoned tennis court. The house was abandoned, and we've been fixing it. Um, and I played tennis. I was really excited. I was like, "Wow, you know, this is." So the tennis court is still. Abandoned, it's sort of, um, but I paint there. You know, I built a little shed thing and sort of I make my paintings outside. That's cool. I don't know many people who do paint outside. Well, you're plein air painting in a different way. Yeah, I mean, Schnabel had this court where he painted in the summers, but it's all very kind of heroic. And <laughs> me, it's just, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just there mixing paint like a moron. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not, it must be nice to. To have that literal air in the room, you know. No, it's it's fantastic, and, and the I, light. The paintings I'm doing now are so thick, and you got to use like, you know, I use like a garden hose to clean things because it's so there's so much paint, yeah, um, or there's so much material that I couldn't, I probably couldn't do it in a room. Like the the pipes wouldn't be able to handle all the gunk that comes right. up. Right. Yeah, so no, just, I can imagine. There's just like a pure practical, like wow, this is the kind of painting you can only make outside. Yeah, and you have that feeling of freedom, too, that you're not so worried about. Anytime you're doing something, building some whatever it is indoors, you're thinking about that space and like, oh, how much am I going to mess up this bit? Or how am I going to clean this up or whatever? But if you're out there, you could just have at it, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing that I've, I've realized about the way I work is that the, the, uh, the real estate, the architecture, and the kind of limitations of the space seem to condition the work. A lot more than you yeah. think. 
Right. I think it, yeah. it happened a lot when I was surrounded by old work, but it was hard to mentally move on. And it's worse if there's work that you don't like. Right. <laughs> You're Just sort of. At you. <laughs> yeah, I had situations where, you know, every morning you see this painting that you dislike, but you can't take it off for sensitive reasons. And then yeah. that thing sticks to you the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it taunts you. Yeah, I roll. I have a roll up policy where I'll, if I'm not, if it's not there, I just take it off and roll it up and then yeah. move on. Yeah, I don't. Otherwise, it'll do that. It'll it'll keep me from being able to focus on the next thing I'm doing or moving on. You know. Yeah, and I and I wonder if other, paint. I mean, I know a lot of painters that live around a lot of work, and I don't know if I could do that. It's it, yeah. bo- it bothers me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think. And when you say that, do you mean living around your own work or you just mean living around a lot of artwork? A lot of artwork, I think. I mean, of course, we have, we have paintings. We have a lot of paintings. And, but but um, particularly like my old work, if I want to move, move on to something else, it's just hard. And just paintings that I've had for a while. But I've had situations yeah. when, when I used to live with other people where I just didn't like the work. And right. it would... You could, but for sensitive reasons, you, you were, I mean, I like some of the work and not some of the other work, but you know, you just, you find that some of the stuff starts sticking to you. Yeah. Um, yeah it doesn't matter if you like it or not, if you're looking yeah. at it every day. And I think it, it happens. into your retinas. I don't know if that happens because you teach, but you're looking at a lot of, you know, sometimes when you're teaching, you're looking at a lot of beginner work. Yeah. Um, and so I often cleanse the palate I go to the museum <laughs> <laughs> yeah I tried to do that when I was a student making crappy work I tried to go to the museum and hope some of it rubs onto me but right. it didn't it, it took time <laughs> yeah that, that happens you know you, I tried to it's funny because I don't I used to live where I work but now you know I have an external studio and, and I just really separate everything from that studio. So when I go to the studio, it's just my work. There's yeah. nothing else, you know. And then at home, I can have everything. And I'm, I think the older I've gotten, the more I've opened up to being able to just take more in. And, yeah. it's, and I can still maintain my, my bar of like what I'm doing in the studio. And that's its own thing. It's kind of separating it in a way. But it is hard at times. I've always sure. had live-work situations. And so my life sort of seeps into everything I'm doing. Um, yeah. I don't know why that is. Uh, the few times that I've had studios, and I do have a studio in Chicago I never visited. It's just a storage <laughs> at this <laughs> point. So yeah. I've always kind of, I like the idea of rolling out of bed and just whatever you're thinking of. Um, oh, I used to love it. I used to love living where I work. It just got to a point. Like once I had a kid, I was like, okay. Oh, yeah, it's anymore. toxic and you don't want that. Yeah. Um, I have it a, probably would have worked. I mean, I work with acrylic, and and I was worried that the baby would like get into the paints and stuff, but he never <laughs> got into anything. So he didn't even put his fingers in the outlets like people always talk about, like kids where they're trying to stick something into an outlet. He didn't do that. So I probably he didn't do that. Okay, what, what's wrong with him? <laughs> I don't know. He's too sensible. <laughs> <laughs> we have a I, my wife just she picks up stray cats like she feeds them and of course they just walk over the paintings now uh, <laughs> and just ruin like a bunch of wet paintings I was oh no well, yeah because I imagine it takes some of those a while to dry yeah they dry flat so big mistake to let the cats in. Um, 
We now have a collaboration, so that's good. Yeah, you have an assistant. No, I mean with the cat. (laughs) That's what I mean. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, they're helping you out. They're giving you decisions to think about. They're the wild card now. Yeah, they are. Now that you've got your location locked down. Um, do you live close to where you grew up? Because you were you were born in Spain, right? In Seville. I was born in Seville. So my parents were. Uh, my dad's from kind of the the center of the island in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, kind of the more backwards area of Puerto Rico, and and he was the first guy in his family to go to college, and we had a kind of deal to study in Spain. Met my mom over there, who was also studying. Me- they were both studying medicine, so. Um, uh, you know, they they lived there, they finished their schooling there, and then moved to Puerto Rico, and that's where I grew up. Was but she I, from Spain or Puerto Rico? She's from Spain. She's so from Spain. So, you know, I always get, they always put that I'm from Spain because I was born in Spain, but I'm really Puerto Rican, like culturally I'm Puerto Rican, and when I went right. to school here. and um, But it's cool, now I've been visiting Spain more, and, you know, it's, my favorite museums are there, and um it's uh, isn't it great it's a fortunate I, I mean, I thing fairly i fairly recently started traveling to spain and um i just didn't i you know i was doing france and germany and all these other places i used to just travel where my sh- work took me and i never showed in spain but um i became like years and years ago i became fascinated i mean i've always been a fan but i came fascinated with guernica and i taught a class oh, yeah. just based on guernica wow so i really wanted to go to spain and you know went to Madrid, Barcelona and went to the Picasso Museum there and I, I just loved it. It was great. And I'm a huge soccer fan and player so it's like, you know, it's holy ground for oh, that wow. stuff. I mean, I'm a, I mean, they have a great team. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. that That's how people know that I'm not from there. They start giving me uh, all that football talk and they You're realize like, nope. this guy doesn't know shit <laughs> immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they can tell quickly, right? They can like, tell, oh, you're not, yeah. They can tell quickly I'm not from here. Um, but yeah, the Guernica thing, so that's, that's, um, that's a, I was thinking about that, about that period, because I don't know that much about the state that he was in, just how crazy that he would have stayed, you know, yeah. painting in Paris at that time and not, fl- I mean, he never visited the U.S., which is crazy when you think about it. Right. Never visited America or the Americas Not at all. Once? No, I don't think so. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I did, I'm, I admit to not being an expert on the chrono- chronology of his I think life he, and stuff. But. He went to the Soviet Union once, and, and maybe I maybe I'm mistaken, but I think he did because he was flirting with a lot of kind of you know sort of left ideas in the fifties. But other than that, he was always in Spain, Paris, and. Just never kind of moved. But at that point, to sort of, you think like the Nazis are here? <laughs> no, he had bravado. You know the story about when they, when the police officers came to his studio and they saw him working on Guernica? Yeah, it's like, you did it. And they said, did you paint this? He's like, no, you did. And it's like, oh, man. That's yeah. a great story. I don't know that's urban legend. But, but I always wondered if it was because in the, during the First World War, he, didn't, he wasn't in the front. And I think he might have felt... Right guilty that his friends all got really messed up and killed yeah and maybe that kind of gave him extra balls or something (laughs) yeah no i can imagine i mean that painting i've always loved that painting you can just look at it and not know anything about it and know that it's a strong 
painting. But then when you hear the story and you learn the history of what happened with the bombing and all that, I mean, it's just, you know. Yeah, and it's crazy. You can't make a heavy. painting like that again. I can't imagine someone making a painting of Bucha or something right now, which would yeah, be the, the equivalent um, right? tragedy, I suppose. Yeah. And a painting would just fall flat. Like, it doesn't... We're so... Maybe those you know, years of postmodern kind of ambivalence sort of make, make the whole thing impossible to... Uh, yeah, I think it's a different... It, painting has a different role now than it did then. Like, painting could sort of um, take on history and be a ledger of, of feelings. I mean, it still hypothetically can. I just don't know that people are taking that task on. You know what I mean? And also, too, the, there were certain artists who felt that they had the, the wherewithal to, to speak to that in a painting. You know what I mean? I don't know if that, like you said, with postmodernism, with everything being spread more thin and everyone choosing their lane or, you know, I don't know that it's, um, it's yeah. going to happen. Then again, the you know, we're not in Ukraine and Picasso was in Paris. So, so th- that's, that's the, true. That's the thing. Maybe a Ukrainian artist might be the person that would. Yeah, help. that could be. Yeah, <laughs> that 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 may well be true. I think there's work that's done. It's hard to see the forest from the trees, you know. And I think there's work being done now that you know, in twenty, thirty years or whatever, we'll look back and be like, "Oh man, that piece." You know, yeah. there's certain things happening that you just have to separate yourself a little. Right. But it just might not be history painting per se. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a kind of thing with authenticity that um, it's the only way we kind of allow it if you're, if you were there, man, kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, like if you look at a Henry Taylor painting, the right. times they ain't changing fast enough, a Philando Castile getting shot, that's probably going to stick. You know what yeah. I mean? That feels like an image that just will, will hold a lot of weight forever. You yeah. know, I think that it's just... You need time away from it for the things to settle and to see what sort of like, you know, sticks. Yeah, and I think that's what happens when the majority of, you know, the more serious artists are just sort of product of MFAs and you kind of, you gain a lot and you lose that connection to. Yeah, I, I to, totally, I think that's the case. And it's, it, you know, there's that secondary there's the work outside of the stuff that's specific that still resonates in a different way too right like if you look at songs from the 60s you know you've got your war songs like the ones like the bob dylan you know right or you have certain like stone song that like really resonates with the war and all that stuff and then you have that the sort of stuff around it that's just the culture of the vibe of everything in that time that doesn't it's not specific to it but it sort of paints the picture of the times which I think is probably just as important in a way. And I think that's all the work being done around like the you know, the really heavy stuff. That's that's still important. Right. Or or maybe I'm just making a case for work like mine that just really is not on the <laughs> nose. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's important to kinda know your place and and I think uh, maybe that goes back to that idea of authenticity. It's like, you know, do do you have the um I mean, can you speak to that with some authority or not? And that's the yeah. weird thing that, you know, the, either the Stone or, or Dylan were in a war, <laughs> and yet right. they were kind of in a war. Um, and I don't know if that would fly today in the same way. Um, 
it's different. Yeah, know, I think it's just, as much it's, as it's I probably flying in a different way. As much as I love Bob Dylan because I I worship that man, uh, you know, it's, it'd be weird. You know? Right. Yeah. No, I think there's a different there's a different version of that that sounds completely different, but you know, it's there's something else that you know, it's like a it's like Kendrick Lamar, you know, is probably the current Bob Dylan, in right. a way. or something. You know what I mean? It's just. It's, there's there's something that has a similar weight, but it's just different because the times are different. Yeah. But it's so hard to see it when you're in it. Well, yeah. You know, it's some... Um, I don't know, the detachment would be more circumspect. And there's a kind of self-awareness, I think, that's if there's anything that's... Maybe that... You know, it's that everyone's kind of looking at themselves as they're saying something <laughs> and right. realizing, yeah, what true. am I going to sound like? Right. <laughs> if, I, if I say this very declarative thing about this right. or that, and um, and that's probably healthy, but it 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 makes for a less heroic time. <laughs> when, when well, yeah, but it, it leans towards like a Foucault, like you know, a state of being watched all the time, which right. creates you know a different kind of temperament. And yeah, and I guess it goes back to the Guernica thing. Yeah, it sort of rolls yeah. right back again into that right so yeah there's a it always it's cyclical you know this semester i'm doing less meanness so it's oh yeah which which i you know i I knew the greatness of that painting but i sort of came around to it i've just been studying it more and more and it's it's deep man there's a lot that painting is phenomenal i mean isn't it an incredible painting uh, it's so it opened so many doors like it was such an inspirational you know I saw I think the thing that lit the fire was when I did go to Barcelona and the Picasso Museum has a ton of his his um, versions of of that painting which are oh yeah just knockouts there's like 50 of them or something yeah he he just did so I mean that guy knocked out I don't know how many paintings a day how many prints the whole thing is just so crazy because people I have people that always tell me, oh, Picasso, blah. It's like, yeah, man, you try doing three paintings a day till you're 90. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then a couple of prints in between, and then some ceramics, too. And then also have photographers in your house and famous people. and whole, All that stuff right. was happening at once. So people always thought, well, he was a misogynist and this and that. It's like, yeah, I mean, he... You know, I'm not going to defend that. He's, he's probably horrible. Right, lots of great work was made by people who are, have suspect personal lives, for sure. But to focus on that misses the kind of how crazy the whole production thing. I mean, to me, that's the thing it's that amazing. anyone can gain something from. It's like that person just got, you know, every day, just boom, boom, boom. And when, when you think about art making today, that doesn't exist. It's, you know, not that kind all. of manic... It, energy yeah i mean but that's the beauty of these these projects that they kind of force you to be in that mode it's like a little fantasy that you get to live um i did a project which is my favorite thing that i've ever done was this thing where i i made an art fair by myself um in a so they gave me this massive space ten thousand square feet or something like that in a, Where was this? This was in the Detroit Contemporary MoCAD. It's called the yeah. Contemporary Museum of Detroit, and um, and I had one month, and I practically lived in the museum. I would clock in at nine in the morning and then leave at five, 
And every day I, dis- I made a booth out of trash, sort of recreating a booth from Art Basel until I finished 30 mm-hmm. booths. And so I got to make, I got to go through a day by, of making, you know, 15 pieces in one day. Quality not being the important thing, quantity being <laughs> all of that. Right. But it was all about the overall, in the end you ended with something that looked like a, kind of a theater of an art fair. Yeah. Um, and it was my, the thing I'm most proud of that I've done is that. But it was also fun. Also, I went crazy while I was doing it. And I right. realized how hard and how little we appreciate the, the speed and the energy that this guy put into making art. No, it was amazing. And the thing is, is like he wasn't, I feel like some people who are prolific find a niche and they just do that and they like pump it out. But he was just innovating. Like he was, he was searching right. constantly. So it was never dull. Like he was never beating a dead horse. It was always opening a new door. And it only worked in a way because he was at a moment, well, the genius of him, but also at a moment when those doors could be open. You right. Know what I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of room there. It's like if you look at like the free jazz guys going from like bop to post bop to free jazz. Yeah. It only could exist because it hadn't been done. You know right. I mean? So it, there was a moment there. They were at the right place at the right time sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. How many artists are the kind of, you know, the beginning of, or sort of invent two or three movements. I mean, the whole idea yeah. is just so bonkers because we we just it, don't even have movements anymore. It's just kind of, like, you know. Yeah, or we don't want it. Like I think now it's probably like tech stuff. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like I mean, in AR in that world, stuff. it is possible because for that same reason, because it is new and it is yeah. Um, in painting, just a lot harder. I mean, we kind of there's micro moments of like. Right. Excitement where you kind of, you, you sense, oh, this, I haven't seen this put together quite like this before. And that's always, right. that's, that's the orgasmic moment that you see around. But, but compared to the early 20th century, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot less. Yeah, it must have felt like a whole new world. I mean, it, I think of it kind of like jazz. Like painting is like jazz, you know. Like if you hear any jazz today. Yeah. You could do exactly. some different stuff with it, but it's kind of like doing, yeah. like, you know what I mean? It's the, it's in that lineage. But like if you listen to electronic stuff or, you know, some other stuff with tech in it, it's just too different because it didn't exist before in that way, you know? So it's kind right. of they, they have like the, it or not. They have the advantage of being new by, you know, by virtue of it's actually new. All these right. things are being designed right now, but they will be old soon. And at some point it will be completely assimilated. And uh, totally. it would not be strange anymore. And then the quality stuff would be the stuff that we're talking about. I find myself, right. the jazz analogy is great because when I'm explaining, perhaps like contextualizing contemporary art, <laughs> I think yeah. about this is what, you know, it's just like explaining jazz to people or something. Yeah. They're just looking at you with this face like, yeah, but I don't like it. It's like, I know, but that's not the <laughs> point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, am I not supposed to like it? It's like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's a great analogy because it's the the moment of abstraction in in painting. You know, became it was kind of like pretty similar to the moment of the abstraction of a simple song structure in jazz. You know? Right. I think jazz was pushed a little later like a little bit well it's kind of close but yeah it, there was np there was a pushback like people were like well this is music about music and i don't get it and i don't like it 
right. you know, for, and, and for musicians was like, <laughs> yeah, he turned his back to the crowd because it wasn't about the crowd. It was about the music that he was making, you know, so it, there's an indulgence in that. And then there's also a, a discovery and an exploration in the medium itself where you have to put the fans or the viewers in the back burner and you're right. really dedicated to investigating what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I find that that's that's great to sort of speak in those terms because it was music for musicians, and right. like just like a lot of paint, a lot of modern painting, uh, or high modernist painting at least, post fifties, it was kind of painting for paint for other artists and speaking, yeah, of, definitely speaking a kind of language that only, and then people would like it or not like it, and it would get sort of appropriated by politicians for whatever reason, but. Um, yeah, I mean that uh, that kind of level of complexity, and, and that existed well into the postmodern era, where yeah. where the levels of removal were even more complex. Even though the image itself was like, eh, anybody can do that. It's like, yeah, but I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that anyone can do a thing. Yeah. Oh, I still get that stuff. Um, but yeah, you know. No one, it's funny because no, well, maybe not many people will look at, you know, um, Hendrix at Woodstock when he's like throwing the guitar, lighting it on fire, throwing it in the amp and just going off as saying like, well, anyone could do that. Yeah, but the the better analogy is, um, you know, a lot of people can play Beatles songs, but they didn't come up with the Beatles songs at the right time. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And then who cares that you can play a cover? Right, it's not the the technique; it's the inventiveness of like coming up with that. Right. So, uh, although they were amazing musicians, no, no, it's like, like Picasso in a way, because he was an incredible draftsman. You know what I mean? He was an amazing technical, you know, artist. But he was willing to just you know not dwell on that and just get down to the bare bones of things. You know. Right. Right. I mean, his early paintings. He had a great review. What. When he was a, a young boy, he, he did this painting called, um, I don't know, it was, it was his father sort of uh, pretending to be a doctor, and his sister was in bed. Mm-hmm. And this is one of these early realist work. I think he was at the Colegio San Fernando when he was in Madrid, still as a student. And it, I don't know what the critique was, but it was something that, that his hand looked like a glove. It was so badly painted. <laughs> <laughs> But it was put in a very poetic way, and I always thought, oh, right. uh, if I can find it, I'll send it to a you. A beautiful put-down. It was a great put-down. Um, uh, if only criticism was still like that. <laughs> <laughs> a but, poetic diss. Just, <laughs> just to show you. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's not like a press release. And <laughs> yeah, now it's just, yeah, it's, it's different. So w- at the time that you're growing up in Puerto Rico, to go back to when you were younger, were you, was music a big part of the... I mean, it sounds like you're a music fan, so... Yeah, I mean, I play music. Um, I don't know if I... I don't listen to any very few, very little contemporary music. Kind of stuck in the past that way. But um, I play... I always have a guitar in my studio. It's how I look at paintings when I'm playing a guitar. I mean, acoustic guitar or a Spanish guitar. Um, but I, you were you a rock guy? Or were you, you know, play, other I, stuff? I started... Well, so uh, as a kid, um, I didn't have any instruments in my house. I sort of, at 13 or so, I picked up a, a classical guitar that my 
my father tried to take some music lessons and he never never stuck so I grabbed his guitar and taught myself with a with a Beatles book like a chord book oh nice that kind yeah. of thing and I think a lot of people in my generation had those and those it's like a perfect band to like get you into sort of music structure and songwriting and all that stuff and yeah. then I moved into like little bands and but I was in Puerto Rico and you know there, there was no no outlets for playing until later but at that at that point this is mid 80s and I was just a teenager and I couldn't get any access to music there was no we got cable in 85 or 86 and That's then this, a big moment, right? That was a big moment because all I watched was um, Spanish, like local TV, the, the normal channels that you would have. And right. it was all that kind of cliche that you see in, you know, like telenovelas and, <laughs> right, right. and people <laughs> dancing for no reason and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, then suddenly we had cable and a whole world opened up. And I remember, and this is kind of a big moment where... Uh, I saw um, there was a show called The Cutting Edge at that point. Uh, nobody remembers it, but that. but it was followed by Andy Warhol's thirty. You know, it was a Ari, Ar, Andy Warhol's fifteen minutes. Also a show. Oh, yeah. It only lasted like a season, but I just happened to get cable right when that show was happening, and I would nice every weekend. Like at midnight on Saturday, I, I would watch. I'm sorry, I, I would watch 120 minutes. Then whatever the TV, the cutting yeah. edge and the and that was my exposure to all this great music that I didn't know about. I just had it was like a spaceship landed, and just yeah. <laughs> there's all this other <laughs> stuff because basically it was all salsa growing up. Yeah, and um, in Puerto Rico it's all just basically salsa and Spanish ballads and a lot of songs about people cheating and being cheated on and and that was basically right. the whole world. So it, it appealed yeah. to older people and kind of... So this thing opened up and there's all these weird-looking people with sort of that look really cool to me and they came from England or other places. Like Robert that, Smith. Yeah, The, first time you the see Cure, Robert yeah. Smith, like, what the the, f- <laughs> the first time I saw Let's Go to Bed, it was also in one of the yeah. shows. I was like, wow, that's really cool. So you're like 14 and it's hitting you at the right moment. But right. the good thing is it was... Fought, the music was kind of my gateway drug to art. Because then it was followed yeah. by this Andy Warhol show, and I was like, "Who's this weirdo?" And this is great. And they kept, you know, you'd had interviews with other artists, and the whole world just seemed crazy to me. Um, I didn't become an artist until much later. So I, I, I studied. My my parents wanted me to be a professional, some sort. Of, I could draw. I was the kid that could draw in class better than yeah. anybody. But it was always thought of as like. You know, I don't know what that is, and I don't know any artist. I didn't know a single artist. Right. So, um, I just didn't know how you would make a living, and so I went to uh, study political science and history, and then I studied. I went to law school, uh, which was a kind of a big mistake because uh, I hated it, and <laughs> I got to. Uh, <laughs> two years of law school so I only have one year left and I took an art class because a girlfriend of mine had been an artist and she suggested oh you might like painting you know right. and I just remember my whole world exploded like I was 27 years old and I had never seriously pursued art and then suddenly 
I was like, wow, this is what I was meant to be doing because I, I was just so happy. Right. I was right. just so happy. And I was yeah. so miserable whenever I had to go to law school. The whole idea <laughs> that I interned for a judge, a federal judge, for a summer, and I knew, like, I suck at this. At best, I'm going to be mediocre. Yeah. And that's putting a lot of effort into it. And I was, I guess I was doing it because I thought it was the thing that gets your respect. And and my family, they were doctors, and I was no good at math, so maybe law was the thing to do. But yeah. I just thought, like, uh, the only thing is that I got in debt from going to law school. Uh, right. And you didn't become a lawyer to pay off that. Debt. Yeah, I didn't become a lawyer. I became yeah. an artist. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Like. I went for the big money of art. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a friend who did that. He went to med school, became a neurologist, like studied the whole way and then didn't want to do it. <laughs> Just all that debt, it's serious. You that know, is serious because I remember I was 27. I think I borrowed like 100 grand to go to law school. Back then, 100 grand uh-huh. felt like... It's yeah, still it's a lot, a lot, but it, back then it felt like a fortune. Right. Like I was never going to be like able to pay it. It's like a giant black cloud floating over your head yeah. at all times. And I felt like, uh, well, I failed at all these things. I'm going to try this art thing. And, and I remember making a kind of promise with myself. If in three years I nothing's going on, I'm going to jump off a bridge. That's super romantic shit. <laughs> 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 and that's the end of it. But I'm going to try if this If art thing. doesn't save me, nothing will. Well, you know, you're, I was 27. And, and yeah. uh, I thought like, you know the way that you think at that age like I, I have to make it work but um yeah i stayed in wisconsin fortunately they gave me a full ride in madison so nice. that's what made it easy um that's where i was going to law school anyway so i took this i i went to this class with this guy t.l Soline, who's a great painter and while i was in madison i met Michelle Grabner and those two people, T.O. Solina and Michelle Grabner, were kind of like my perfect art parents. Yeah. And they, they gave me great guidance there. Michelle gave me a lot of guidance about professional stuff. And T.O. was a right. very kind of romantic painter that kind of, you know... It's a good blend. A great blend. I think that's, that's all a good... That's what a painter needs, someone like bare bones, like... And then someone to guide you with the professional stuff and not be coy or weird or you know because i met some teachers are like guru type teachers that say you know sort of oblique weird things (laughs) they inspire a little but it's not practical yeah (laughs) and i also had the you know i went to school kind of early 2000s but i also been late 90s and there was still a lot of the theory people that would just send you to read theory and that was it (laughs) <laughs> right. So right. you would go like, oh yeah, all you have to do is read this and read more theory and read more theory, and you're finally like, I don't know how. Th- it, it made no difference in your work at right. the end. Right. It's not sticking. Yeah. No. So it's like it's that's as bad as a teaching advice as like you know make it bigger or make more of them. Or right. When yeah, people yeah. complain about that, but it's like yeah, read more theory. It's like okay, so you I did, and right. <laughs> it's just kind of like. So, um, yeah, now when I teach, I try to catch myself whenever, I mean, the make it bigger thing, it's, uh, it's not a bad advice, but, but, <laughs> but, um, it is lazy. Well, advice. it tests you, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. not the answer, but it's, it's always good to answer. push yourself out of you. But, I like the, the do a lot of like, you know, if you make a drawing that you like, you know, do like 50 of them and see what happens on 50 just as a. Because I feel like it's exercise, you know? It's a good thing. To yeah, it's not bad advice. It's, it is just 
kind of go-to thing. Um, yeah. Because it is good, and it's good for the artist. And, and um, I mean, when you're teaching, you just try to be careful to... I mean, I try to... I teach more like a coach than a yeah. teacher. So I, I think that's a better approach. I... To, as a coach, because I'm a soccer coach, I totally agree. I yeah. think there's, there's so many similarities. Like, you want to leave the room inspiring them to want to yeah. make more. Not Absolutely. Like crushing. Back in my day, it was like a they crush your spirit. That's, and then it's that's like, what I'm strong saying. Enough, you'll stick with it. <laughs> there was but a we'll lot of. out the, the, the thin one. You know what I mean? It's, it was a way for them to, like, kind of like make it or break it sort of thing. Yeah, that was, a, that was like a big thing back then that it, it had to be. And I was in Madison. I couldn't. You went to where? You went to Yale, right? So that must for grad school. Yeah, it was a definite break you down, build you back up sort of thing. Yeah, so that makes sense, and that works for some people. Sometimes you get a sense like this is what this person sort of needs, or maybe even wants. Um, Yeah. But generally, my my biggest fear is like say something that would make someone quit. Yeah. And so I try to be very careful about that. You know, that's not our job. Unless, unless it's someone that obviously doesn't want to be an artist, and and sometimes you get right. that sense like this person's just here, not out of their own will anymore. That's when you feel bad. That's the worst. Is like, look, this isn't easy for any artist who's really gunning for it. And if you're coming in like, yeah, there's nothing else to do. I'll just do this. <laughs> it's like, there's I know. no chance. It's like, you know, then you're racking up all this debt for, yeah, it's, you know, and you're not even into it. It's like, come on. But you can't be the person who's like, well, yeah, this isn't for you, you know, but, but you have to say like, hey, look, there's people out there who want this 150%. If you're given like 30, yeah. it might not work out. You know, you got to push yourself. No, it's hard enough if you want it. <laughs> and yeah, also right. almost any other career path would be less difficult. Right. <laughs> In a lot Ironically, because people think art's easy. Well, like stu- might- studying art is easy. Being an artist right. is very hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good point. That is a very good... And I tell people in class, I'm like, look, you know, if you're worried about grades, like if you show up and you work, you're going to do well. You know what I mean? Right. But that's not being a professional artist. That's a whole different can of worms. No, I mean, uh, I, I heard some of the podcasts and people talk, people that teach that you've interviewed, and it, it's, a lot of it is so true. It's like you get a sense... Like the kids that have the, the um, that went to art school in or an art high school, for instance. Yeah, I get a, I get a lot of those kids that are they've been artists their whole lives, and sometimes that works, and then sometimes that works against them. Right. For for me, it was so exciting that I that I wasn't that I finally could make art, and I was so excited that I think it drove me, even at a, even though I was older than the other kids. I had done things I hated for so long that I put all my energy. Like I work way harder than anyone else in my group because I also had the ethic, the work ethic from law school. Right. And so when I arrived to art school, I was like, God, these people are so lazy. (laughs) (laughs) You had the perfect balance. Yeah. You were deprived of that thing that would really motivate you, but you had worked in an area where you had to make the, get the work done basically. Yeah. So you had the deadline approach, you know, like you have to do your stuff, but then you were set free by finding something that you really had passion about. So putting those things together, you're set. Yeah, and, and uh, I think eventually I did, you know, you sort of flatline and you become as lazy as them. But then when you go back <laughs> into, yeah, you sort of uh, are around it and you realize, like, why am I so worried about uh, But when you start, right. 
making work professionally, everything kind of changes, and you have to. And that's when you get a sense. But with students, you just get a sense of how driven they are and how ambitious they are, and and, and you know, and hopefully the work is there too to back it yes. up, and you just get a sense how this person. Isn't it you funny? Know. You can tell. Like, oh, that, that person's got the fire. You know? And then some... It's very rare. That are, yeah. it, it is very, very rare. rare when I you agree. go like, oh, my God, I did not expect that from that person. Yeah. Usually it's like... I uh, agree. You just get a sense like it's going to happen. And sometimes it takes a while. There's people yep. that I thought, this person's going to break for sure, and it takes five, six years, and then suddenly they break. And you thought that they were, oh, my God, so I hope they don't give up because they were like, the, they had the right mix. Right. Well, sometimes it's conditional. Like in school, they have the support system, but then they have to adjust to getting out of school and not having that support system. It takes them longer. And then there is an occasional student who seems like unmotivated or not really there. and they're, It's almost like they're a fly on the wall during the whole right. process. And then they get out and a couple of years go by and they just, it's like everything explodes. Like all that stuff that they took in, they just, they go with it. But that is also very rare. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy because... I think when we went to school, probably at the tail end of this um, era that was very like, you know, move to New York kind of thing. Right. and The formula. Yeah. yeah, there was a formula, you know, and it's maybe it's something that started in the 60s with the kind of early MFA, you know, classes that started then. In the then. geographic part yeah. of it. The market determined that too because you know new york la chicago are the only places where you could sell anything basically it was the idea so you have to go there you have to go there and it's the only way to be seen there's no internet so how are people going to see your stuff in the basement in madison right you know what i mean like you, you got to kind of move somewhere where you can have some visits you know now it's like you can't be unseen you know? right it's right on guard to not show your work to someone every single day but that is a great situation i mean sometimes i talk to my students about that it's like you know you don't realize that it's great that you're not... Can't do it. You because can't, you're going to be an old guy if you do that. Like, you guys don't understand how nice <laughs> it is now. <laughs> yeah, I know. When I was a kid, no one would see my work ever, and you guys have the whole... Yeah. No, but we, we came from a model that was... Um, you know, when I think about, like, you know, Rauschenberg had a... Pollock had these studios in New York, yeah. and they paid nothing for them, and it was kind of right. comfortable and... We were like, well, you know, obviously you moved to New York. And, you did, and it's like, okay, so the 70s roll around, and then the 80s roll around, and suddenly those same loss cost a fucking fortune. Yeah, you're not So, so your fantasy <laughs> is that it's like, well, you know, these guys had these studios and the space to make this kind of work. When you move to Brooklyn and you're living in a shitty apartment. <laughs> trying, right, paying like... But, know, but that's the advice they gave you. It's like, move to New York. It's like, okay, so suddenly right. everything kind of gets compressed. And... Uh, yeah. And um, the proliferation of artists is phenomenal during that time, and galleries, right. etc. So, so the model was a little distorted. The model from history we got. Uh, so by the end, it was just kind of imploded. At the moment that you know, paintings everywhere through media became kind of a possibility. You could just be in Mexico and have the same right. career now that a guy in New York does, and. Uh, and I love that. I, I, that's the part where I'm excited about that. That 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 you can talk to a, a, an artist that's like, well, you know, I can't leave because my wife or my husband they have to stay here. They have to live in the south. It's like, well, now it's possible, right. and that's a big positive step, I think. 
Yeah, it's huge. I think, and and now I think that's being taught more that you can work outside of that old. It, it took, I think, those artists who came to to be or were educated in that environment to basically retire off. Right. And now you have younger people teaching to say like, oh, it's cool. You can, you know, you can move to Detroit and still, if you, it's really like at the end of the day, I think if, if someone works hard enough, if they're motivated enough, they'll find a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And given whatever environment or circumstances, they'll find a way to do something. No, it's great. It's far more democratic and equitable and sort of, you know, it's good, and it's good for art. Now you have people yeah, for sure. who are not, you know, either have the advantage of geography or wealth or, you know, every, it's, it's a lot more... I think but the one thing that you lose is the... And I, and I think this is... When I was younger, I did this thing in one summer where I... Because I'm, I'm an autodidact, I mean, I, I didn't study art or art history until later. I spent mm-hmm. one summer, my first year in Madison... Um, and I just, I, I looked at every issue of um, Art Forum, back yeah. going back to 1970, and I made, I gave myself that task. So every day I would look at three issues, read a little bit, but mostly look at the images, take pictures yeah. of something that I, and that that was all I did. I could explore everything that had happened, but it was all curated for you, and you would right. have a, and this is the big advantage that that I think I had, I, I would look at a lot of stuff that I didn't like and I didn't yeah. understand and I, I was just like puzzled by uh, a lot of conceptual work that I was, at, at the time I was like, what the hell is that? Um, I think algorithms now make it impossible for you to have that adventure with things I, you don't I like. Agree. Yeah. No, it's funny because, uh, you know, you that was like how you learned a lot. But when I was in undergraduate school, I would go to the art library and I would go to the magazine section and go through every art forum in art in America and just look at it. Yeah. You know, it was the same sort of thing. And read, I remember seeing Bruce Nauman for the first time. I was like, what is yeah. this? You know, I couldn't get it. There was like two wax heads on like a chandelier thing. And I was like, what the, f-? you know, but, but you were exposed to things that tested your, you know idea of what art is or should be or whatever then it, it's an education in that sense but yeah. yeah the algorithm i think is yeah it's weird it's a different it's so consumer based you know it's so money based that it's really i mean it always was though i mean just all those you know the 13 white guys and one white lady in the east village who were yeah. basically making art in the 60s <laughs> yeah. that was all money based too it was just a much smaller market you know so mm-hmm. it's it's the same thing it's just exploded thanks to technology but the right. underpinnings are there, I think. It's just now they're in the sense of the democratic process of it. It is much more open to anyone to, to share. You know, whether you can hear through all that noise is another. That's the challenge. Yeah. I think the, the loss is probably for the depth of it versus, right. and we gain in another aspect. I mean, it's a, um, but maybe a lot of it was posturing. I mean, a, a lot of articles that I read in that time were like, what the hell? Talking yeah. about. No, totally. <laughs> so it's yeah, a lot of it's a lot of academic fluff. Um, yeah, but um, but there was some real death, and, and I think that gets sacrificed because you don't have to struggle as much with work you don't like to sort of go. Well, right. what's what's the big deal? Like your Bruce Nauman thing. I had Bruce Nauman by default because he went to Madison uh, for undergrad. Oh, so he was, so he, was, the, he, was he was in the water. He was <laughs> in the water, and he was one of those. He was like a hero to me. Like. Uh, when I started um, 
but yeah, but it was difficult work. Um, um, and then a lot of conceptual stuff. Um, so, you know, but it, it, it's not, um, I mean, that's, that's the thing. If you're there, I didn't have access to galleries. We had Art Chicago back then, which was the predecessor to Art Basel. So all these great galleries would pop in um, once a year. Um, and it was the biggest art fair in the hemisphere. So you had German galleries, everything, until 19, or until 2000, when Art Basel started, Miami. Yeah. And then it died, completely died. Like It, it was gone. So Everyone's like, we're going down to the beach instead. It, yeah, but it was great because um, you could, you'd get the theory stuff at school and then you would go and look at surfaces for painting, which was something that a museum could not give you in the same way. And this is... Okay. Uh, you might get that one or two contemporary exactly. shows, but it's a very limited. When you see an art fair, it's like a microcosm of everything at once in a way. Yeah, and the, the kind of... The kind of fracture and, and the painting surface that you see in an art fair is very contemporary and slick, and it was something that you wanted to measure yourself against. Whereas museums, a lot of the work, you know, it's amazing, but it's it's more like it's more for people like us or people who are at the very beginning. So, yeah. so people who are like have been painting forever, or people that those are the people that visit museums and get the most right. out of it. The people in the middle that are just sort of beginning to find themselves and stuff get confused because yeah that's the that's when you go go to a, an art fair and look at all this great stuff it's like listen to music that's happening now to get yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't go to tchaikovsky or um because you're not gonna get the stuff you need um right at this point <laughs> no that's so true i again the, the analogy i think of with music is kind of like the samples of things you know like don't go to like the herp albert biggie small sample <laughs> you know what i mean before you listen to to his song like hypnotize and then you can go back and see it in a different way you know what i mean it's yeah, like yeah. you can't dive back into that there's no point of 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 sort of like getting in the door with it you you almost need that to, to go from now and work your way back instead of like just jumping back there. Well, it's just like a you need to understand context for a yeah. lot of works that you're looking at in a museum and and what you know. There's a lot of works are important because they're historically important in the life of that artist. They're not necessarily right. his his sort of more refined work that you might yeah. get the mechanics off when you're a student. And you're, yes. what you're looking for is kind of the mechanics of painting or the, the kind of and so you get that. And I just remember going to this art fair and looking at these slick surfaces. And how the hell did they do that? Right. And of course, you're not going to see that in an early Rauschenberg or something. <laughs> you're going yeah. to see it in his later work, but that's not the stuff that's at museums. And, um, yeah, that's eye-opening. I yeah. had that. The first show I saw in Soho when I was still living in Pennsylvania, we took a trip to New York and I saw Larry Pittman and Carol oh. Dunham show. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about surfaces. I was like, what? I mean, those were the days where he's like styrofoam balls on the Carol Dunham's and Larry Pittman was just like, what? How do yeah. you do that? You know? And it just blows your mind because you're like, wow, painting can do something totally different than what I've ever seen. But that's what happens when you are of the thousands of, but all the many MFA students and, and people studying in art schools that are not in a major urban center. 
and people in my generation got these images through magazines, and so you were never able to consume surface and yeah. the kind of you know the kind of complexities of of seeing of really looking at at marks and really studying like the all those things that are so important um you know everything was flat and kind of from afar <laughs> right. and so it it develops there's this analogy to like British bands being so good at doing things wrong and kind of coming up with their own thing, like taking blues and kind of fucking it up and making their yeah. kind of version of it or punk or whatever. Um, and I often think about that, like the, the San Francisco painters, the Bay Area painters, looking at Abeg's mm -hmm. pictures and sort of making their own version because they, they weren't right. there to sort of... And so they're getting thicker and more crusty because they assumed that's how it was. And yeah. so a lot of that happens, those mistakes. Um, of geography are very important. No, it's it's it's. I think maybe it's a little secret to the development of any medium too. It's like this game of telephone, where by the time you yeah. digest that image from from that other thing, it's 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 mutated in a way that when you try to be inspired and create something through that, it's a totally different thing. You know. Yeah, the I was always uh, amazed at like old hard edge painting. Oh, like yeah. when you would see it in reproduction, you were like, "Oh man, that's crazy!" It's like super tight and flat, and and then when you finally get to see like a Barnett Newman or like you go see those old paintings, they're like totally, they're kind of like, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're not. <laughs> there's there's a tight. lot there, yeah. Yeah, there's so much hand in it, and then here I was in like college making these paintings that were like super tight, where you know, I couldn't show a brushstroke or something. And then you're like, oh, wait, there is a warmth to these paintings. And that's what makes them, like Estella, if you look at it up close, I mean, there's a lot of great sort of like hand in there that you would never know in reproduction. Right. But you have to move through that. Um, yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like you you got to, for me at least, it was important to kind of digest and cannibalize all these. Oh, I agree. Making like on oh, super slick and then you digest that and get through that yeah. and then you move and then at the end you realize how like the casual move that seemed like nothing is so hard to do well right <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's funny like even now that like the last show i had in new york i i did a walkthrough with the gallery and i was like okay see these drip like see this little bit here yeah. that's on purpose don't it's not a mistake it's like i nerded <laughs> like, out I on that, that thing for a while yeah 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 right. um <laughs> yeah i mean I, madison had a, a really nice al held um, oh, those are crazy, that, aren't they? Was it huge? Oh, it was a huge one. It was yellow, and and I just remember, like, in reproductions, you don't get a sense of how crazy these paintings are. And to this day, I don't know how the hell they made those, because they seem yeah. so, like, there he's lifting like little where the tape is, like there's the successive layers of that, and there's a magic to that too. You always know who's a painter when you go to a gallery because they. They get really close, and then they stand yeah. on the side, and yeah. they look at a painting the from the side. <laughs> and it's like, that guy's a painter. That's a giveaway. Yeah. It's like, if you stand 10 feet back and just talk, it's an art historian. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's so true. Like, any real painter will, like, walk up and then immediately go to the side view. The go to the side view, view. Like, yeah. Right, what's going on? Did it's they like, tack it? Is it linen? Is it canvas? Yeah, Did they put on the sides? <laughs> that's, that, that's how it should be. But, yeah, it's, it's funny how... You know, we're they're looking at symbols and we're looking at, you know, paint. Yeah, um, definitely. For a second, I thought you meant symbols like a drummer. 
Like whenever <laughs> a musician walks up to the stage, they're looking at the pedals and they want to see the gear. They're like interested. Yeah, in, right, we're looking at gear. Working? We're looking at gear. <laughs> and nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's um, it's kind of everything else is secondary. Um, but yeah, it's, that's it's the weird. beauty, though. Isn't that the beauty of any medium in a way? It's like in baseball. You know how guys steal signs. I feel like that's the beauty of the sport. Yeah. It's like the inside stuff that no one else gets that's like the art, the real art form of it. You well, know, you like know, the pine tar or whatever, you know? I think it's funny when you see like pop stars, like musicians, famous musicians, suddenly like nerd out on gear. Yeah. And you know they're talking two different languages because they've been talking about their songs in a kind of broad way and the symbol behind the song, you know, forever. And then suddenly they, you just hear them talking about microphones for a while. And you're like, yeah, yeah that's fun. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I feel. Into uh, it. Yeah. That kind of shop talk of painters. Well, uh, y- your paintings, it, it feels like, and in, in going back to that idea of like now having this a little more time and space, you know, the work, it feels like I could see some of the work being quicker. I don't yeah. know. but And then some of it taking like much more laborious like process to it. Yeah. Like, do you have different speeds that you're working in? Well, I'm very p- promiscuous with styles and sort of jumped around quite a bit. Um, I had a period, I, I had a couple of shows in New York um, where I did a, a kind of stable style. And then I moved you into locked this. locked in for a little? Yeah. So I had like maybe a couple of shows. I, I was with Andrea Rosen for a while and I did a couple of mm-hmm. shows that were very, you know, in the, in the one style. I did add things, and then I went nuts doing installation work. After that, sort of painting, expanded painting installation. Uh, and I did that for 10 years. So, so it would be a space activated and then a few paintings. And now I've gone back to painting, painting. Uh, the thing that I'm doing now has a... Um, I mean, I did these paintings for a while also that were airbrush paintings with... Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of characters and a lot of work. I was really into this idea of like labor theory and, or, or not, or just basically putting a lot of. It was good by virtue of all the work it had in it. <laughs> you, it's undeniable effort. Undeniability was the the, the key yeah. word to it. Like you wanted this thing to be, you know. I'm not saying it's good, but it was not bad because at the very least it had that. Um, right. And that's um. And now it's. I'm doing portraits that are almost the opposite. They're very, 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 very thick paint. And I paint them with brooms, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of. um, And the whole idea is to get a portrait out of three brush strokes. But they're huge, massive brooms, and they move a lot of paint. Um, And to get that, that, the quickness of a sketch into a big painting. So that's that's kind of the main aim right now and to make a painting that feels small but it's very large yeah I was reading a little bit about you talking about that shift in scale where you expect something to be this small image but you know what could be quick at a small scale when you blow it up that big even if it's minimal or you know even if you can see how it's made pretty quickly like there's an undeniable sort of like weight to the effort of scaling that thing up so it kind of like is like a yin yang of simplicity and complexity yeah i mean you want the thing to not just be a large painting but a small painting made large 
so it has all the kind of thickness and there's a kind of you know I make my own brushes I make my own paint to to sort of get to make it look like it's a natural what you would see in a small painting so that's mm. the thing that it has a to me it I hope it has the eff- the effect of like making you feel smaller instead of just right. looking at a big work um, yeah it, it it reminds me of this is a bad analogy probably but you know those Hitchcockian views of like where they zoom in but like pan out at the right. same time it's yeah. like this weird kind of like stretch of yeah. big and small close and far they move the camera out. in as they're zooming in as yeah. they're zooming out yeah this is a weird it's, it's kind of fun yeah, it, 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 it plays with your perception of scale and, and your sense of like physical yeah. space in relation to the image and weirdly it goes back to that whole idea of sort of mis- misreading images and in, uh, in, in print media that we spoke about before. Like, it's all about... When people see the paintings, they're like, oh, you know, I thought they were smaller because they read a certain way comfortably. And yeah. I, I like that. But in the end, they're just portraits. Um, some, of them are real, some of them are real people. Some of them are made up. Um, and that's what I've been doing more or less consist- consistently for about a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Well, the the pattern ones too are really interesting. The one, well, I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but the way you're using mark making to build up the portrait or the the visage of the face, you know, like it's what's uh, that I'm, I'm sure is probably attuned to what you're talking about. Some of the work that you do that's more time based or labor based in that sense, where it's you know, there's a any time you break things up into like those big sort of like thick paintings feel like even though that's probably difficult, they feel quick just in the, they, the efficiency of brush strokes. Well, they, they also but, have to be made quickly because yeah. the way the paint, the way I make the paint, it dries. It starts drying a skin almost immediately so that you, wow, can't, cool. you can't work. It's not like you can go over it even 10 right. minutes later. It's, you, know, you have to lay it, and it's, there's so much paint that everything has to be pushed around in about a 10-minute period and then on to the next mark. And if you mess it up, it's done. You can't overpaint or there's no... So everything has to be very planned. There's no improvisation. Do you like that or is that anxiety-producing? <laughs> I like it. Um, the other one, it's the opposite. It's like you're improvising constantly. And so you move yes. from left to right, just adding and adding and adding and adding until you're, you fill in the whole thing. And the whole time you're just improvising or coming up. I, I, was, I was doing series where I was, I was doing the series where I was painting every work in the art institute in the old wing onto napkins and then translating them to, to works. And so I would, I would go around every day and draw napkins when I was chair or in my breaks, and you know just quick sketches on. And then those would be translated. And I like that because it stopped me from inventing, which got really tiresome because you, you find yourself repeating forms if you're inventing constantly. Right. So then if you're just, you set this assignment of like, well, the paintings are, I'm going to do this whole wing. Everything that's in here with these quick sketches and you overlap them. And yet you get this cacophony of, you know, badly curated thing <laughs> that encompasses <laughs> everything in there um, yeah. but it's a it's a you know it's a quilt 
Yeah. I love that uh, that idea. I mean, I feel like I do that with... Uh, that's why I love traveling so much, because I feel like it it reinvigorates my eye in a way. Oh, like yeah. looking and experiencing new places. And since so much of so much of what I'm doing is about, like, our world or the environment, like, what, what we inhabit, when you travel, it's, you know... It's like a reset. I mean, I just went to Portugal for the first time in my life. and Oh, and the tile work the, there the, is unbelievable. Oh, my God. It was crazy. I mean, we did the whole bit. We went to the castles and, like, we, you know, we checked it all out. Just the colors alone, you know, enough to, to sort of, like, hit the refresh button. Well, that's the thing that why I like doing the, the sort of site-specific work with painting you get a lot that a lot more with sculptors and certainly with installation artists. With painters, it's a little bit different. Yeah. But the, the the tradition comes through, like you said, in plein air painting. Um, but um, what what I liked about it was that whenever you go somewhere, if you have these rules of sort of getting materials around the gallery wherever you find them, mm-hmm. the, the we block ugliness where we live. Right, just to get through life, but when yeah. you're in a new place, you don't. You're looking at everything, the good and the right. ugly. So yeah, you don't um, ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're. I think the tourist has a weird way of uh, seeing newness in places right. where people just forgot <laughs> they existed. Yeah, they just don't notice. Yeah. It anymore. When you yeah. drive home, you don't. You block all those signs and all that advertising because you just don't want to see it anymore and you just look at the pretty stuff oh there's that lake again great and right but when you're a tourist you're looking at all that stuff <laughs> in yeah, conjunction with yeah, everything that's different so it's like uh, in new york it's graffiti like yeah. so just when you're here you don't even look at it you don't even you know? look at it and the same way you go into i would be in germany or someplace doing a show and i would go to a dollar store across the street and see all these weird sponges and all these weird like normal things that just look alien to me yeah. And to anyone else, it's like, what? Um, and the way that sets off your mind, just little things, stupid things. But it's the, the ability to kind of have a new set of eyes whenever you walk there and how that affects you when you're making stuff later. It's something I think, yeah, I think that's the beauty of being a tourist. Yeah, and it's, it's inspiring just in general. I think it's so inspiring to see different things, you know. It was funny, the story you were talking about when you saw MTV and you were like, whoa. You know, like that opened up. Yeah. When I was in, um, when I was in college, I was a jazz DJ, and then eventually I got subjected to Latin jazz. You know, <laughs> what I mean? and then like I had kind of the same experience with salsa because it seemed so different. Let alone bachata and like all the other music that yeah. I learned about after that, or you know, um, but uh, like reggaeton. But but salsa was like. And, you know, we would go out to this place, this, like, small divey bar where there was salsa dancing. And it was, they were like, no, this is, like, amazing, you know. And I joined, like, we started a, a salsa, like, a bastardized version of, like, a salsa band. Really? Yeah, but that music, yeah, the rhythm and the music was, like, so infectious. But it's just outside of what you're used to, you know what I mean? That becomes, like, alluring and it can refresh your idea of what music or art or whatever it is can be, you know what I mean? Which I think is so important for expanding your mind you know yeah. is to just be exposed to something else basically yeah and i think well salsa was, the, the thing about salsa is that the of all the latin sort of popular music it was the one that 
salsa is really from New York. Um, right. Even though Puerto Rico is its biggest uh, exporter. Um, yeah, it exploded in New York. Yeah, so the jazz time for dancing. It brought jazz was, and dance together. That's what that was, that's what it was. It was jazz musicians mixing with Latin musicians that created this type of music that was very complex, particularly early salsa. So we have these. Right. We have a in the seventies. They're called hard salsa, the salsa dura, mm-hmm. and that's the seventies stuff. And the lyrics were always about, you know, drug addicts, and it was very kind of. It was our urban music. Like Willie Colon style? Yeah, like Willie Colon, yeah. like, right. you know, Hector Lavoe, and yeah, uh, yeah. even a Gran Combo. So you would get these kind of hard, harder, you know. Yeah, they were, they were dance hall bands, but they were singing about very urban stuff, and, and right. they were kind of injected with jazzy chords that were difficult, and difficult for like a 15-year-old to... So it all sounded too grown up or too, <laughs> you know. right. yeah, but yeah. Uh, now I'm like, wow, these guys were geniuses. Uh, and then it got replaced, by the time I was 15, it got replaced by something called romantic salsa or erotic salsa. Mm-hmm. And that was more kind of poppy and about the, and so, and then reggaeton came in and it's a different, different vibe. We had a in-between period of like Spanish rock. Yeah. That that lasted for a few years, and um, but really that's been the the evolution. Now reggaeton is kind of you know sort of worldwide, and that caught me by surprise because when I was a, when I was younger, I was like, well, it's just a beat. Right. <laughs> You're gonna base <laughs> no, everything right. like a whole movement around like one single but so dr- is drum drum beat. Is just yeah, but I mean, it, like it was literally one you know kind of drum pattern <laughs> I know. yeah exactly and, and so every I, single song is the same yeah. i thought but, like, but reggae was like that too yeah you know yeah but i mean it it was the, the thing about reggae is that it would slow down and you would have different drum patterns between reggae the the skank guitar thing was what kind of joined the whole thing right. together yeah 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 but this thing was literally one drum pattern <laughs> <laughs> I know <That's, laughs> around I the whole it. thing, and I, I and I never thought that would have the lasting impact that it did. It really caught me by surprise. Yeah, uh, but the four four and the and popular American music yeah. is just as predictable. Oh yeah, like A B A B. Sort of four you know on the I mean? what's called a four on the floor or whatever. Four the, on the floor, yeah. Yeah, just like you know, that's, a backbeat of like four four time. Yeah, that's the kind of mainstay of disco. And the blues technology. are, you know, that's. It, with that song structure, but it's the same. I mean, everything was the same, basically. Right. It was built off the same pattern. Jazz really blew things up. You know, that's when they were playing around the beat. Right. But it's funny because I never came to salsa because obviously I wasn't, I didn't grow up in Puerto Rico. So, or, you know, anywhere where salsa was being played. So I came to it from the jazz end. So like Machito and Tito Puente was right. like the stuff that I, that was my entryway. Right. Which was pretty cool because then I could the linearity of it, I could just see it as it progressed and moved on, you know. Yeah, you com- you came from complexity and just got into the dance part of it. Right. Yeah, but, but whenever, you know, and actually my wife that, you know, at that time we were dating, we would go to the Parkside and on Housen Street and, yeah. and dance the Latin jazz, you know, and it was just like when you, there's a difference between listening to it and then when you go and you dance to it, you know, it's like a whole... Then you get Oh, it. <laughs> that was the thing that when I was a kid, there's... Dancing salsa is not like normal dancing. Like, 
like their specific right. steps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I learned that the hard way. Um, because you think that because you're from here, it comes that no, you have to learn it. It's not like it's not like it's like a free form thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's good stuff though. Um, what do you when you're working in the studio? Do you listen to music or do you? TV, I listen. Radio? Yeah, I listen to. Um, let me see. I have a just classical uh, radio station. I always leave it on. That's what I'm listening to now. Other than that, just a lot of a lot of history. Um, yeah. sort of videos and I just leave the sound on and it's kind of and uh, and um, I think lately it's just been the Ukraine war and all that I just have a lot of stuff heavy, always playing stuff, on, right? on or anything on the geopolitics now is always very interesting um, well you were a poli-sci major to start right so you, yeah. Yeah. you have a foundation in that stuff yeah and it's weird sort of because I'm a I like reading about history a lot and sort of seeing it sort of unfolding right now yeah and being able to compare it to other to sort of re- you know other periods of wars it's it's tragic of course but it's also fascinating and strange um, yeah it's like you see things cycle so you're almost like oh yeah like we're yeah in this cycle now yeah um so that's um yeah it's a little bit pornographic um you have to catch yourself going like you know this is this is a people are dying here you can't right. let yourself sort of be numb out so it. into right. yeah um, although going the other end can be like after 9-11 when i saw that happen i was watching news for like probably five straight years with like right. utter anxiety you know and it was like too much you know, oh yeah, yeah. Just cut it off. Start watching baseball again. <laughs> exactly. You know, breathe a little bit. I think I'm at that point. Although I was there, I moved to New York like two weeks before 9/11. Oh, geez. and so uh, it was a kind of a crazy, like reception. Um, I mean, at that time. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was tense to say the least. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but I. I you know I like it here and it's uh, it's been um, yeah it's it it made me realize how much the space ends up affecting you know who you are and and, and the kind of work that you do yeah um, so do you have things coming up how can you share your stuff with people where can they find your work yeah um well. Uh, I have yeah, I have a bunch of shows coming up. I have a show in Shanghai um, nice. coming up, and, um, and then next year I'll have a show in London and one in Paris. It's with a gallery that I just started working with, and it's not they haven't announced it, so I I can't. Uh, it's on the DL for yeah, yeah. Um, but if people follow your, but yeah, I have keep posted. I, I have an Instagram, I, and I've had a show with um, Nino Mier in LA. Um, and I think I'll be doing a show with him uh, later on next year, and nice. um, and also with Kavi Gupta in Chicago. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So there, this it's a it's a very uh, it's a very busy time. <laughs> also, say, I have time. Your plate there. Yeah, I have time to paint, and it's uh, you That's know good. I've been I've been hungry for a while to to get yeah. work, so it's it feels very good. 
Well, you have a lot of targets now that you got to work towards, which is always helpful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those deadlines yeah. come at you. <laughs> I feel that I don't know what it would be like to make art without the pressure of having a show. And I've been fortunate to have that. Um, and I wonder if that's the that's a kind of the driver for a lot of the work. You I know? think it's a lucky pressure or you know thing to have. Oh, absolutely. And I, that's when you feel very fortunate. Um, but I wonder if I would be, if I didn't have shows, what kind of work I would make. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. It's like, what would a, what would a musician write if he never played out, didn't go on tour, didn't release records, yeah. you know? but you'll never know unless you do it. Yeah. Unless you give up, uh, you can give up galleries. <laughs> like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm just going to do plein air paintings from now on. Yeah. And there's a beauty in that too. Right. Yeah. beaches and palm trees and that sounds <laughs> nice <laughs> well listen thanks so much for taking all the time it was great to meet and to talk to you yeah absolutely this was a true joy man real treat thanks Sound and Vision is recorded and produced and edited by myself you can find more information by going to the website soundofvisionpodcast.com you can find images and get more information on Instagram at Sound of Vision Podcast. You can check out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors for their long-withstanding sponsorship of the podcast and supplying such great paints. Make sure you check out them at your art store and Fulcrum Coffee Roasters for the coffee caffeine hookup, which is always amazing. Check out their subscription plans. If you have a chance, please check out Why I Make Art, the Sound of Vision podcast book. And if you have gotten it, if you could go wherever you got it, whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever, and leave a rating or a review, that really helps the book. So that would be great if you could leave it a review, show it some support. Um, It's been an outstanding uh, amount of support and people sending in messages saying that they've enjoyed the book, so I really appreciate that. Many thanks to all the artists for taking part in that. And most of all, thanks for Jose for taking the time out and for you guys for listening. Got some great people lined up for more future podcasts coming out every single week. And I look forward for you guys to hear it. One last big shout out. Big thanks to Miles McHenry Gallery for hosting the opening of Why I Make Art, the curated group show that just closed. Uh, many thanks to all the artists for taking part in that and coming out for the book signing and opening and release. It was a great event. So um, make sure you guys go check out Miles McHenry Gallery, Four Spaces in Chelsea. Definitely worth the visit. 